Hey there, and welcome to the UX Growth Podcast, sponsored by Pulsatic, the service that's got your back when your website faces downtime. This is your go-to spot to dive deep into all things UX design. Here, we tackle the questions you've got about navigating the UX field, and we share a thing or two to help you grow in your UX journey. Each episode is all about making the tough stuff feel doable and inspiring you to take the next step in your career. Now, let's jump right into today's chat. Hi, this is the UX Growth Podcast, a podcast that helps people learn and grow in the UX design industry. I'm your host, Nick Mann. I'm here with another guest of season three with Trevor Nielsen, part of the bottom 99% of designers and co-founder of Clio, a free browser extension that helps you discover and create the best LinkedIn content. Thank you so much, Trevor, for being here. I'm excited to learn more about you. Thank you for having me, Nick. It's awesome to chat with you. Yeah, so... I'm always so fascinated by other UX designers and looking at your extensive experience in the industry. Can you share with us how you initially drew into the field of user experience design? Yeah, so I got kind of lucky. <laughs> I'm always a little bit unsure of like how people will respond to this. Sometimes I'll have like junior designers ask me, how did you get into it? And they think I'm going to have some magical answer. But I was working as a graphic designer for a marketing team. And our team got let go. And so I had the option to either go find a new job or I could switch to a sister company in UX design. They had a role open. And so I jumped all over it because it, this was in 2017 and I knew that UX was becoming more popular. So I took advantage of that opportunity. So I kind of got forced into UX design, which is mm. most people didn't get forced into it. A lot seems like a lot of people are trying to get into it on their own accord. So mm. that's how I got into it. But I was interested in it already. And so I felt like it was a lucky break for me to get a chance to learn it while working with my boss that came over to that team with me and get paid to learn it. So it was really fortunate. So I, I, I recognize that that's not always the case for everyone, but that's kind of how I got into the UX industry. Yeah, I, I know. I feel for every designer that is trying to break into it because I've been there when I was trying to move it into the position because it is such a challenging uh, spot because a lot of times you need experience to get in and that's always the defining factor but also going through the process of like the hiring about the tech industry there's multiple layers and for people who are outside of that usually don't have to go as many layers as possible <laughs> i'm like envious of my dad when his roles like he does one interview and he just knows at the end did he get it or not where us is like man it could take weeks if not months to know if you got the job yes yes and then you hear those sad stories of people that go through the, all the interviews and get ghosted which is crazy to me i know just, my heart breaks for that but you think you're doing so well and all of a sudden like what, what happened you know like oof. yeah no closure at all for a lot of people it's it's a bummer yeah, it's a trial and error process. And I do feel like through my process, because I definitely have my own share stories. And the thing about though, is it definitely has improved my resilience and my own mindset of how I go through challenges and how to not necessarily feels like I'm starting over, but also the fact that 
I'm also learning about myself and my own resilience of how we are dealing with failures and how can we learn from that? I think that's such an important aspect is growth of the aspect of these interviews. So I'm curious throughout your career and the variety of projects that you worked on, what are some of the ones that challenged you? Yeah, so it's a good question. I feel like I've had challenges in different ways, which is really cool. Like recently when I went through the interview process with a variety of different companies, I kept getting asked the question, what is my, what is my niche? Like what industry do I want to be in? But I feel like I've had such a variety of experiences that it's hard to say that I'm, that I have a preference there. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, so my background is a bit diverse as a UX or product designer. So I worked in a larger organization that had thousands of employees and many UX and product people. So I had that experience. And then I went and worked for a couple of startups. And now for the past few months, I've been self-employed, trying to build up some stability in my in my clients. So I feel like I've had a, a variety of challenges there. I think when I first started doing the UX thing and I started with a, that bigger organization, that was that was pretty tough because I just felt so, I, I didn't feel as confident. Mm-hmm. Looking back on it, I feel like I should have had more confidence. I think I was just scared by the newness of it all, which a lot of yeah. new designers feel, you know? Yeah, so especially was, if it's your first time. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I empathize with designers that are just starting their first role. And I even just saw someone talking about how they now have their first role but they feel so much imposter syndrome because they they're new and they don't feel confident in any of the decisions they make. And Mm -hmm. and I'm like, you know, just go full speed ahead. Like you got the job, they hired you. They like, you'll, you figure it out the more you just go forward with confidence. So make decisions and don't be afraid of making bad decisions. And now being self-employed, I'm like, it's a whole different set of challenges. I'm trying to figure out a hundred different things. So it's just, it just feels like no matter how, many years you have in the field, there's always going to be a new challenge around the corner. And so I think the best skill is to figure out how to, how do you tackle challenges? Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like that's been, that's a skill that we probably should see on resumes more often. I'm a, I'm great at tackling challenges. (laughs) You can work with ambiguous tasks. I think that's also quite a good skill set. I definitely have had even job interviews ask me about that because it comes up because there's a lot of people who may not fully know what is the UX role that you will be doing. So they assume that there is a lot of big of areas you're going to be covering. And that's also the reason why a lot of junior levels can be so daunting for them because it feels like they're expected to know everything. And there is so much to learn in UX and the fact that not every position is going to require everything that you need to possibly know, especially if you're now in an industry that you have never worked with. Like oh, the person who is, you know, person who has never like worked with aircrafts before so now has to work on like UX of like how is one gets navigated and manuals got to be like, what do I do here? It's like, how do, what do you do? And that's like, you just go through the process of asking, you know, the right questions to the right people. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Getting, getting down to the core of being, you know, a lot of people put that on their on their website or resume is I'm a problem solver. You know, that's, I think they want to be recognized as a problem solver. And as cliche as that may sound, that's what it is. Because 
unless you really are niched down into one specific industry like finance or or crypto or the music industry mm -hmm. unless you have like most people don't have a really specific niche so it is going to be a huge learning curve at every new job you know so it's mm -hmm. yeah i agree i think it's you just go through the process asking lots of questions gaining an understanding and then you figure it out every time you figure it out and then you and then you're an expert and then you go to a yeah. new job oh man that was that's really interesting that you brought up being a problem solver it's i actually used the tagline your personal visual problem solver on my email oh and, cool. yeah i know and it's actually funny that i was given that to a per a random person on twitter who like replied to one of my tweets saying that uh, saying that you are a visual problem solver when I was talking about like when back when I was a graphic designer and now I do a lot of UI work so like it still applies that that really stuck with me because that really put into perspective what I do as a designer how I solve problems visually and now that's where I always try to think about when I'm trying to solve these problems because that is essentially what is good design does it solves problems that's really cool I think that's nice that you got that feedback from a from a tweet yeah, speaking of that, uh, can you tell, uh, tell us more about uh, where you came from the name of the a part of the bottom 99% of designers that you have? Yeah, sure. So it really just came as a kind of a joke. I'm, I was chatting with a few other designers in Slack and in a Slack group, and some, some of them were venting a little bit about how there there's this theme around the industry where people will kind of self-proclaim that they're part of the top 1% of designers. And then they got to discussing, you know, where are they, where are they getting this from? Is it, it's usually like a self-proclamation, like nobody's out there grading every designer and saying you fit into this tier of designers, you know? So it, it's, it's just, you know, they're being confident, like everyone should be, but I just thought it was funny. And so I thought, you know, I'm really, I don't know that I can consider myself a top 1% designer. So that what's wrong with being part of the bottom 99%. And I just liked that because it feels relatable. And so I've had a few people yes. message and say, Hey, that's like, I, I, I feel you. That's me. It was kind of a joke just because I wanted like these designer friends to see it on my LinkedIn because it's in your tagline and everyone it's like right next to your name. So usually people can see that. But then I just kept it because I was like, hey, people seem to vibe with this because they probably also feel like they're part of the bottom 99%. Oh man, that's so funny that it came out as a joke because I think it's powerful. I think it says a lot about your vision of the design industry and who we are at, in it as well as it shows your personality, how we see it ourselves, that we are all in this together, that there already is no levels of who's a better designer because we are all trying to solve problems and just doing the best we can. You know, that that really, it's so true. Like, I, I can't think of any designer who doesn't feel a sense of imposter syndrome on like a daily basis. And even designers that have worked for the biggest companies in the world. And in my, from my point of view, not just because of their track record of working with these companies, but because of seeing their actual work, talking to them, seeing how they think just um, like in world-class, but even then they still feel insecure about certain pieces of their skill set. Mm -hmm. It's common that we, I, I feel like we're all just on this journey. And so I think the trying to segregate ourselves into these categories that's not my favorite thing but yeah so, you know, like not the best way to go about it for every other 
way how we see other designers because wh why make more friction than there needs to be? Yeah, we're all on the same team, you know? <laughs> no. I, and whenever I see another designer get hired, uh, like for some reason, like LinkedIn really promotes when somebody gets a new job. Like that's oh, like yeah. the heavily it, it promoted yeah, thing. Yeah, it, it definitely boosts. So every day I see these people getting jobs. And in my opinion, I'm like, that is every time a designer gets a new job, we all win. Like I, it's so hard for me to see it as com competition because if they're getting new jobs, that means that the industry is is alive and and well and designers are being hired <laughs> That's what we want. The past year, there's been so many design layoffs that I just celebrate. Even if I don't know the person, I always celebrate their post because I'm like, yes, somebody got a job. That's that's good for mm -hmm. us. Like we're all we're all in this, and we all we all need work, and we all want to make money doing this because it's so fun. So yeah, um, yeah. I don't I don't love the segregation about it. I think that it's better to kind of see it all as like we're on the same team. Yeah, no, that comes from like the abundance mindset. And I think that's where a lot of growth happens. Uh, totally. Because I know for like the longest time, I actually didn't know I had a scarcity mindset back when I was a graphic designer because of a lot of times I felt like the roles I can only apply to are like local. And there just wasn't a whole lot of positions for that. So I, so, you know, thanks now to the boon of remote work, which is kind of like the good side of COVID that happened, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All things considered. And now it's like, wow, I feel so much more freedom. I feel like I'm no longer, feel like I'm chained to any kind of area or feel like I could be, I'm stuck in any kind of way. Now it feels like I can actually set my mind to it and I can actually accomplish it. Now it feels like there is no longer any constraints. And the only constraint is my own ability now. And it feels so much more freeing. So when I look at other designers who are achieving great things, it's not about they're doing something great that I cannot achieve. It's how can I learn from this now, now I know it's possible. And yeah, I love that. That's, I, I like a lot of people have said before, you know, the internet's the great equalizer. Really like the the world is our, like our client base can be anywhere as long as, you know, there's seems like for a lot of full-time roles, they require people to be within so many time zones. So that's like the one limitation of remote work is like a lot of companies want you to be in their same, mm -hmm. an overlap with their team schedule, which makes sense. Um, but I've noticed with client work, like so much of that is asynchronous that you can literally work for anyone anywhere and make it happen. So it's really cool. Like if you can figure out how to tap into the world market as a designer, there's mm -hmm. just so much potential. So yeah, I, I agree. I love that abundance mindset. There really is such a need for design and yeah, it's, it's powerful. So yeah, I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's also funny. I used to work for a company that was, that was in Europe and it was so awkward because they have like nine hours difference between my time zone. And yet we were able, we were able to make it work, to be honest. It's actually really funny. That see, there you go. Yeah, I I've seen it happen, and I I feel like teams that are more that go into it with the expectation that you know we're going to do this asynchronously in a lot of ways, I think that helps. But I, I think the teams that struggle are the people that are really like meeting heavy. Like we have lots of meetings, mm -hmm. lots of our, our calendars fills up with Zoom calls or Google Meet calls. I think those are the teams that struggle with that. But the asynchronous teams, man, it is. 
it's pretty cool to see what people can accomplish with minimal meetings and just touch points mm -hmm. and, and recordings. There's still videos, but it's like you watch the video when you can and then you respond when you can. Uh, and it's like this asynchronous meeting that happened. Powerful. Yeah. So one question I get a lot from my viewers is when a person is dealing with so much the UX designer, they have to adapt a UX strategy that can meet the user's needs while also with the business needs. Ooh, that's that's tough. I, I know it's like... always I know it's always the toughest question I always answer to my listeners too. No, I, I understand why that's a big question because I feel like everyone's probably trying to find the silver bullet, you know, that everyone's like, what is what is the answer? I know they I... say the simple sentence and that's all you need to say and everyone will be on your side. I feel like the the strongest teams I've been on where there's a really good product that is meeting the business requirements and also meeting the user's strongest wishes is, is usually teams that have strong communication internally because it feels like, you know, if they're, if you're missing the mark, on behalf of the users and they're not happy, but the business is making lots of money. Mm -hmm. It feels like there's a disconnect in the communication there somewhere. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like, so the first UX design job I had, the users were not typically happy with the product and it was just a really big company and made a lot of money. And I think there was this sense of, it was like this fear of ruining that revenue stream, you know, like fear of making changes. But we were reading the reviews and we just knew, you know, people are not loving this. And so somewhere there was this disconnect in like passing that information along from the the users to the the head honchos. Somehow they just weren't getting that message that this that there was this importance that these things needed to happen. So and then contrast that with other teams where the the CEO and it's usually start the, the I feel like the strongest teams I've been on are startups. And it's probably because it's such a, the communication loop is so tight. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not many layers in between the decision maker and the end user. There's just, it's all very tight. And so I think it's so easy for the CEO to be completely plugged in to what people are wanting and, and ready to pivot and make changes to the roadmap immediately. Like, I feel like those are the strongest teams that I've been part of where, they the the founder or the ceo actually believes that the user is the, that what they say is truly important for the business and mm -hmm. there's this, there's this meeting in the middle there because there's sometimes sometimes there are business requirements that require certain features or elements that maybe don't make the user that happy but it makes the company money and so i think it, at those times there's compromises designers sometimes don't care about how much the money the business is making but i think they should that's part of it you know? Yeah. I don't think there really is actually an answer to that. So that's the reason why I don't think there is a wrong answer. And how I believe it is how we handle this conflict of knowing from the information that go for the top of the business level and knowing from the users of being able to understand what the issues that are happening and be able to ask the right questions to it. Because yeah. the thing is that with a lot of people, it's very easy to identify what the problem is, but uh, also the issue now is trying to find a solution to it. Because the thing is, is that while people are good at identifying problems, 
identifying solutions is a whole nother ballgame because there's a lot more moving parts that a lot of people don't know about. And that all falls back onto, uh, we need to figure it out because when we think of one solution, what's going to give in a process, because there's always very, it feels very rare, especially on an enterprise level where everything can be neatly down because there's just so many moving parts available that something has to give. And it really comes down to like the pros and cons of like, is it necessary? I think like that's the direction that every designer should look at. I know there is never like a clear answer of do X, Y, and Z, say this to that, and everything will come out smoothly. I, because there's just so many different levels, there's so many structures, there's so many different levels of where a business wants to have from where it meets and how it works because there is no one size fits a process because not every business operates the same way. It's not fair to the users. It's not fair to the business owners. And it's not fair to our jobs of how we are supposed to do this properly. So that's how I always look at it. But man, I always don't want to give like paragraph answers to my listeners when I try to answer this question either. No, I th- I think you landed on some really strong points there though, that yeah, the challenge does get bigger with those bigger companies because making one change in one area affects five other teams. So that's when things really slow down because it's mm-hmm. like, okay. And that's when all the, that's when like enterprise companies end up having so many meetings compared to yeah. the startup culture, which is often a, li- a bit more light on the meeting side because there's, like I said, there's just less gaps of communication. So there's legal, there's finance, there's there's sales, and they all, you make a change to the product, like they all have to know. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we have to talk to them first, then you have to go and explore solutions, then you have to go review it with them, and then you have to go back. And it's, it just creates all these different elements. That's a good point. That's why I think a lot of teams struggle with that problem. By startups, they have a lot more room to be able to fail and be able to grow from it for like enterprises, instead of for growth, they want to be able more protective. I would say that's how they see their business, the the difference in their businesses and why things move so much quicker for startups because they have more to gain from it. Totally. Yeah. I've people always compare it to like a cruise ship or a a speedboat, like making a turn. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's, it's just so slow to make those changes with, especially in software, you know, like once you get so big, like making one feature change isn't just like logging into a framer <laughs> can't just log in and just like make a change. There's like serious databases and all these things connected and mm-hmm. intertwined. So yeah, making little changes is a bit of a bit of a headache. The bigger the team and the bigger the software gets. Yeah. So Trevor, what do you think are the most common misconceptions in the UX industry? Good question. Like, I think the the most common one I face is people thinking that I'll tell someone I'm a designer, and then the common response is like, it it it's usually oh, so you are a graphic designer. That's that's the first assumption, and then oh no no, I help make software. Like I help make apps, websites, and then the, the second incorrect assumption is oh, so then you you know how to code. So like, what coding languages do you do? <laughs> So I feel like from the outside looking in, there's all sorts of misconceptions. Um, I guess that's why I ask, because I feel like that's one that I face more frequently is mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. people, people not understanding what we do. And, and I feel like 
I did a post about this a couple months ago and asking, you know, how do you explain to your friends um, and family what UX design is? And I got some pretty good responses. I think one that I really liked was, I'm trying to remember, I think a few people said it, but in different ways, but basically it's like someone building a house and they compared us to uh, the architect and then the coders, the developers, engineers, they're like the construction crew that comes in and puts it all together. Like nobody would go in and build a house just by going and buying a bunch of wood and just starting to nail pieces together. There's got to be a blueprint. So mm-hmm. I feel like that kind of helps people to be like, I help make a blueprint for apps, software before it gets coded so that there's a plan and it's been battle tested before this expensive engineering effort begins. So mm-hmm. I think that that's a big misconception. I think that I just feel like is never going to fully be solved. Yeah, because like not, it feels like not even designers ourselves are always on par with like our definition of what is UX design. So it's like, of course, companies are also going to struggle as well, too. It's just so funny because like how much everyone has their own definitions of UX. It's it's can be so crazy. Like what's the difference between that and like product design? Like, to be honest, like a lot of times I just feel like they're the same thing. I know some people definitely would disagree, but like for, for like for easy ways to understand the problem solving of what we do, that's why it's just so easy for me to combine the two, even though I can see an argument that's not the case always. No, I'm with you there 100%. I think they're the exact same. In fact, like, and it just totally depends on the team. Like one team might call it UX when they hire you. In mm-hmm. fact, one of my roles was a lead UX designer. And then my next role was senior product designer. Those are the titles they gave me that I inherited just by getting the job, but it was the yeah. same role. It was the exact same role. And so is that the issue or is it the company's not understanding it? I don't know. Nobody really, there's not really this like Bible of correctness that exists somewhere that I've ever seen. Something I The most interesting thing I've heard recently was somebody was suggesting that it might be that product is more common in the U.S., and UX UI mm. is a common term outside of the US. And so as I heard that, I've started to kind of pay attention that it usually is designers outside of the US that I'm noticing have the UX UI term in their title. And it's a lot of US companies that designers in the US have product. So I haven't fully tested that out, but I'm just starting to pay attention to it. So I don't know. Uh, that could be that could be some element to it, like a cultural could be so i choose ui ux in my job title because i think that's just the most common and easiest way people view our type of work as well as like i always like to have the part of ui just because i'm a graphic designer by trade i always just like to do that part of it i think i think that always will be a part of who i am so i feel that's always just an easy way to be able to combine that together but also at the same time it's just like and then it becomes like how much ux do you know or do you do because sometimes a lot of the cases ui just like over eclipses the ux and doesn't always be clear because of that it really can get so confusing <laughs> for people because depending on like, I see people create these charts that show like, this is exactly what a UX designer is. This is what a UI designer is. This is a product designer, but it's like, well, then you go, you go into the real world and talk to people that have those different titles and those charts just completely get destroyed and don't fit. Like 
there's no official rule that says it's a certain way. And it's it, it's hard because I feel like it does cause a lot of confusion internally in our industry. So then you can imagine these like outside of our industry, people hearing about design and seeing like all these different titles. I can imagine it's extra confusing for them. Like, what does it really mean? Like, who am I hiring? Like people that aren't familiar with design, but still need design help. They may not understand who they're hiring. What are, what am I hiring you to do? What do you do? And, and they need oh. to know quickly. Man, what I just remembered a couple of months ago, I had a LinkedIn direct message from a woman who wanted her jewelry designed. And she looked at my work. It's like, oh, you're a product designer. You can design jewelry for me because you design products. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. I only do software. <laughs> it's so true. It's really sad. I, I have a, a handful of industrial designers that have followed me. And every time I've seen that, I feel a little bad that I think they don't know what I do. And they're probably going to be disappointed when they see me talking about software because I've talked to a couple of industrial designers that they used to have the term product designer, and then we stole it away from them. And I've heard people say it's Facebook's fault or it's, who else? There, there's diff- there's these big, big fang companies that seem to have taken away that title from the industrial designers. And I've, but I've actually heard them say in these different forums or threads that they're, they're so frustrated that like, that was their term. And now... <laughs> Now people don't, now when people look for them, they think they're getting software and it's just such a conundrum. Yeah, I know. I'm, like, I'm curious to know, will that problem ever be solved? I'm curious. I I think so. I actually am hopeful because with the emergence of AI, I feel like there's so many things down the road that will be streamlined that it'll be easier to see like, you're, you're a builder. You're, you don't have to have this particular set of knowledge because you can use tools that make that much easier. So I, I, I kind of feel like this hopefulness that in the future, we'll just see each other as like designers, builders, creators, you make things either virtually or in the real world, but you're, you're building something and all these little nuances maybe will go away, but maybe I'm just being hopeful. And that's not going to happen. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm going to be hopeful as well because the UX industry is still so young and there's still (laughs) so much we're still learning. And it's crazy how there's there's people who feel like they know absolutely everything when reality is no one does. (laughs) (laughs) And and the things you know, like the, the importance of the things changes because technology is developing so quickly that... It's like, okay, here in five years, it's hard to imagine any of us have the same workflow that we have today in five years. Oh yeah, so, mine changes so, like every six months. <laughs> yeah. So so to think that you know everything is like not that beneficial because what you know now is not that helpful to your, you in like five years. Yeah, I'm always a little shocked when I see UX designers that have like 20 plus years experience. I'm like, how did you even know to call it UX back then? Or did you later changed the title to UX looking back and realizing that's what you were doing. Cause yeah, I do. I feel the yeah. same. It feels so new, but yeah. Then you see those 20 year veterans and it's like, man, they were the OGs. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny to see companies even ask for like five years of like AI experience. Like <laughs> no one has nope. that. Oh, red flag. Nope. <laughs> 
yeah. So, so man, Trevor. So, I think education is such a re recurring theme for a lot of designers and how they are getting into UX industry and how they can become better. So, uh, I'm curious to know what is your approach to learning UX design. I for sure learn best by doing things. Hmm. So that that's how I got into graphic design. When I was going to college, I wanted to be a teacher. And I had a friend that ran a video agency and he invited me to come work with him as a graphic designer because I he knew I had learned a few skills in high school. So I went and just started doing graphic design. Like I didn't go get training and then go find a job. I just started doing it. And so, okay, I had those, I had the one or two classes in high school, but then years later, I picked it up and just started doing the jobs. And so I started out as a freelancer, just picking up jobs that were ultra discounted or free <laughs> as often as I possibly could. I participated in a lot of those. I don't know if you ever saw those contests online where mm -hmm. people say yeah. I need a logo and then the, here's the price and then everyone competes and tries to win the job by actually doing the logo. It's probably so unethical. I don't see those anymore. I don't know if they still exist. They still do. I don't think they're as common, but I'm not going to lie. That was one of the biggest reasons I hated the, the graphic design industry. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I hated it because I never won one. I would see these designers win though. And I was like, I see how they did their logos. And I was like, man, it's so, they're so good. And so I think it helped me because I did a lot of those trying to win. Um, and I think that just by going through the reps, that's how I learned those design skills. So then fast forward to UX design, I think it's similar, like building actual software. You know, we talked about UX product mm -hmm. UI, it's, it's software, right? We're not, we're not designing jewelry. <laughs> as much as that might confuse people we're designing software and so actually actually getting into a tool and making software and then and then we do more than that right we we test how useful it is how how helpful it is beyond just like looking a certain way so i think that's been something i've advised people in mentoring sessions is just start making something you know don't sit and wait till you get your first job. Cause you, you mentioned at the beginning that there's this, it's so hard for new designers to break into the industry, right? Because oh, yeah. there's a certain level of experience and that they need to have first, but they're sitting there waiting for their first job in order to get that experience. So it's this crazy, weird, like expectation. It's a vicious cycle. That's what yeah, I like it, to call it. Exactly. So Honestly, I'm like, I think part of what helped me get my start in the design career was just by starting doing projects. And I think there's so much, oh, there's just so many different levels to design that there's projects out there for everyone at any level. Like you're so many of the projects I did was like a my parents' friend who was a doctor. You know, that was like someone who had need of design. And I just did so many little projects like that, just through referrals, um, trying to just get my hands on anything that was real world experience. And today there's just so many, even websites, you know, like if a designer is just looking to get more tactical experience, getting their hands on website tools and helping their family and friends make their website better, like giving, giving them a more powerful landing page, doing website audits. 
I feel like that's different from software, but it's still a step in the right direction. Like if you're just sitting there with no work and you're trying to figure out how to become a designer, it's just so easy to jump into it, especially Figma's free. Like you can have, you can use Figma for oh. free. So there's really no reason to, that there's nothing stopping people from just building things. I think they just in their mind think I have to get that job to, in order to build things that's legitimate. Mm-hmm. But just, I, I just don't agree with that. I think you can, you can build software on a variety of different levels. You know, it doesn't have to be this in-house perfectly built thing with a full team. You can build scrappy things with just you and your laptop and, and learn a ton doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see it where like you, like people don't want to call themselves a designer till they get some paid position with it. When really it's not something that it's not a title that you are given to. It's something that you actually just give it to yourself. You know, there's so many people who like to put like, I'm an aspiring designer. Like, no, you are a designer because you are designing things. I yeah. think once we identify as that, we are able to make better decisions as a designer because we are designers. We do things that designers do because we are designing things. And so like, I think that definitely is the mindset of where people, designers feel like, oh, I'm not good enough because I need to be given that title. When really, we just give it ourselves because we're all designers. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, don't wait to be given the title. Just give it to yourself. I've heard people do this in marketing or other industries. They'll give people coming out of college these tips and they'll say, don't, if you did an in- internship or if you, like, don't say that it was an internship <laughs> just say that you worked there. Like yeah, no, no. what's the difference? And so that's their tip they're giving people. And, and they'll say they use that in order to convince people that they were legitimate because everyone comes out of college with this fear that they're not going to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, you did the work and you have a lot of stuff to show for it, but there's this bias that hiring managers have if they see like intern in your resume, or if they see aspiring designer, they immediately like turn off because they're like, oh, I'm looking for someone who is like an actual designer like that that in their mind that's what they think they want so it's like well if the only difference is the the word in the title why not just fudge the truth a little bit and get yourself an interview you know it it really just comes down to like imposter syndrome you know that's what it's always comes back to where it's like people feel like they're not good enough when really how you view yourself is not how everyone else will view you. And people need to remember that there is a difference between the two. For sure. Yeah. And it's so hard because even today, I still feel that same feeling where it's like, even coming onto this podcast, I've seen some of the guests that you've had before. And I was like, I just don't think I'm in that same class at all as some of the guests you've had. So I was like, is, is Nick going to feel less excited to talk to me? <laughs> so those those are honest thoughts so I'm like I feel like that those thoughts and, and those are probably not true you know I don't know and so I think that those are just thoughts that we all have so yeah, it's so funny what you think about that because it was the same way with me when I contacted you I didn't know if you were even gonna bother responding to me because I felt like I'm still nobody in the UX space because oh, I crazy. still feel that way. I still feel that way sometimes when it's always crazy to have these designers that I looked up to when I started designing and that they actually want to be on my podcast and actually want to talk with me, like to spending their time that they could be doing something way better, but they're spending with me. Like, wow. So I feel that way. I know how yeah. it feels. Yeah. That's, that's nuts. I, it's just mind blowing. Like, like 
someone asked me that the other day, does the imposter syndrome ever go away? And I was like, to be honest, no, <laughs> it's never going to go away. Maybe when we're old, I don't know, but it's so far that's yet to be the case. So yeah, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. Like when you're so old, you just stop caring about literally everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'll be sad if we care, we stop caring about everything, but we still kind of wonder if we're not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. So as we're drawing a close to this episode, what's the best way to support what you're doing, Trevor? I spend most of my time on LinkedIn. I've um, dabbled in a couple of other social platforms, but that's definitely the best way to find me. I try to post a few times a week and I enjoy it. It's a good time. Mm-hmm. I believe like LinkedIn, it really is the best platform, to be honest. The more like I've ventured more into it, it's like this feels just a lot better. It feels like people are actually trying to be more supportive where all the other platforms feels like you can break someone down and there is just no consequence to it. That's what I really don't like about the other platforms. Yeah, there, there's something about the nature of LinkedIn being a professional network where yeah. it's to employment. Yeah. And also, you can check out Trevor's Clio free browser extension. I think that's really cool. I think that's a very wonderful thing that you're doing. Yeah, it's it's fun. Jake Ward founded it and invited me to join and help build it. And it's been so fun. And then we have a software engineer named Ryan helping us. And, uh, he's been building it from the ground up and he is just so talented. It's it's really fun. Like I love that startup style, building a product and just calling the shots uh, and having this equal level of ownership with your team. It's so fun. And it's cool that it's built for us. It's a product I would use even if I wasn't helping build it. So mm-hmm. it just makes it extra exciting for me to work on it and come up with ideas and promote it. It's pretty fun to find a product that you can help build that fits within your your wheelhouse of what you already do. So yeah, I'm loving it. It's in, it's free right now. So it's a free Chrome extension. We're going to build a, some paid versions here in the coming months, but that'll be more in like a web app form, but oh. the, the web, the Chrome extension will always be free. So if anyone wants to try it out, they can give it a whirl. Yeah. Yes. And all links of that will be found in the show notes. So you can easily check out what Trevor's doing and support him. So any closing words you like our audience to know about? I hope more people follow you and and listen to your episodes. You're doing a lot of cool stuff. I'm super excited for your success as a podcaster. You know, I know not all podcasts make it, but I feel like you've made it. And maybe you don't think that way, but yeah, I'm just grateful that you had me on. And I just encourage anyone to go and give you a follow on LinkedIn, subscribe to hear more episodes from your podcast. I'm I'm pitching you. That's my final word to your to your audience. <laughs> for them to go and stay in tune with, with Nick. I appreciate it. Uh, I can see why so many people enjoy following you as well, because how, the important things that you say, as well as you are so humble with yourself. I think that's something that's super admirable. Uh, I see it oh, from you. your the, the top 99% of designers, or is it the bot, the bottom <laughs> 99% of designers? I see that and it makes sense and how we're all in it together. And, you know, when, if one designer is succeeding, we're all succeeding. So that's, I think that's a very closing note to be able to end this on. I love it. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> yes. Uh, please do support our guests. And until then, you just listen to the UX Grow podcast. I'm your host, Nick Mann. Thank you for listening.
That concludes another episode of the UX Growth Podcast. We appreciate your time with us today. If you found value in this discussion, we invite you to follow us on your preferred podcast platform or to connect with the host on LinkedIn. Before we part ways, we'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Pulsatic. If maintaining website uptime is on your radar, Pulsatic is a reliable solution. Receive real-time alerts during downtime, create informative status pages, and easily manage incidents. And the best part? Getting started requires no credit card. To support the show, we encourage you to visit our sponsor's link, which can be found along with other relevant links in the show notes. Until next time, continue your exploration, learning, and growth in the UX design field.